0: When I was just a kid, my parents made one of those discoveries that you're rooting against and discovered that of all things, I was going to need remedial therapy to help me speak and swallow correctly. I know that'll come as a surprise to most of you because my mouth seems to work just fine these days, but there was a time when there was all kinds of trouble because of a congenital defect in the way my little mouth was put together, and that led to a whole bunch of rather undignified exercises. There really is no therapy, there is no physical remediation without embarrassing the client, uh, embarrassing the patient, and I went through all of that, probably the worst of which was my mom took a big, long cord with a big button on one end, and I had to hold the button between my lips, and she would tug and see if she could pull it out. The idea was to strengthen all the muscles around my mouth, and you will say, mission accomplished, you did a great job, right? (laughs) The way the therapist evaluated how my therapy was going was she had something similar, except and she wasn't on the other end of the cord, a little machine was, a gauge that told her just how much pressure I could stand. This thing pulled against my lips until inevitably the button came flying out of my mouth. Like I said, undignified. I asked at one point, because I'm competitive, can I hold it between my teeth? And they said, no, then you'll need a dentist. And and I watched that little gauge move upward, and eventually all the problems that they were trying to correct got fixed as I got stronger. And that's one way to measure strength. One certain way to measure strength is how much pressure it takes to make you relax your grip and let go. Two years ago, I read the memoirs of a a member of our special forces and he said during the selection process there were several occasions where he thought based on what they were having him do, this is it, I'm dying now. But here's the money part, he never thought, even then, as he registered what he thought was his own death, he never thought of quitting. Which told me I was never designed for the special forces. I mean, I I think about quitting all the time in far less dire circumstances. The pressure it takes to make you let go, that's a sure measure of strength. Today in the Bible, in the third chapter of the book of Daniel, we're going to see three young men who we would not know, aside from the brief mention that is made in the beginning of the book of Daniel, put under tremendous pressure. Everything in their lives boiled down to one moment designed to put pressure on them publicly using very deliberate means to make their will collapse under the pressure of their emperor and king who determined whether they lived or died, and literally bow and worship rather than stand fast in their faith. If you'll open your Bibles in the book of Daniel, I'd like to tell you their story. The book of Daniel is most important because it is a book of prophecy. But before Daniel opens Daniel's writing and mind to visions that help him understand what God was doing in his day and even now what God is doing and will do in our day, Daniel is a book of narrative. Its first several chapters tell us of how Daniel and his famous three friends who we know as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego all came to be in Babylon. If you were here last week you'll Recall how the Babylonian Empire, through steady pressure and a decisive military campaign, finally subjected Jerusalem. Daniel and his three friends were part of one of the early imperial deportations, where the young and the best and the brightest among Judah were not killed but taken away from their homes. Based on Babylonian customs, we have good reason to believe that when Daniel and his three friends who were renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken into Babylon and put in the king's service, they were only 14 years old. Put that in our terms, they were freshmen in high school. These boys weren't shaving, in other words. They were young men, ripped away from their fathers and mothers, ripped away from their custom and their culture and their food their friends, all their family, every single support system that they had stripped away. Even their names were changed. You know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but you should know those are their servants' names. They were Hebrew boys, and every one of them, Daniel, his name means God, God is my judge, And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego likewise had Hebrew names that spoke and praised and prayed to God. Their everyday names were reminders of their faith and reminders of the God who had promised to be faithful to them, how they must have felt, how a 14-year-old must have felt with no one to support him but someone who's just his age and in the same miserable, frightening condition. Everything is against them. They've been chosen because of their physical appearance and their obvious intelligence. The purpose is, in three years of training, reshape them, remake them from the inside out to make them aware of the science and the art and the literature and the language and everything about this empire in which they find themselves. Daniel chapter 1 registers their early faith. Daniel and his friends determined not to pollute themselves with the king's food, they observed the law of Moses in their eating. They refused to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols, which to their conscience would have testified, would have meant worship. And they said, please put us on a very meager diet and see how we do. And they did well. They excelled. That's why Daniel, as the story unfolds and we come to chapter 3, Daniel is actually serving in the palace. You can think of him as a, low, as a cabinet member. And these three have been sent out into the provinces. And now these foreigners have risen to places of prominence. They're probably only 18 or 19 years old when Daniel 3 opens. And Nebuchadnezzar has been so successful in his conquest that he now has many people under his rule. And according to his custom, he wisely put locals, he put nationals from the nations he had conquered to govern over their own people to maintain some sense of cultural identity, but he needed to unify the kingdom. And Daniel had shown early on that God could help him understand visions and dreams. Before Daniel started speaking of his people, he told Nebuchadnezzar miraculously of a vision in which Nebuchadnezzar understood himself to be one of the most important emperors of his time. That's probably why he had the hubris, the extreme arrogance in Daniel chapter 3 to try to unify his nation by building a grotesque golden statue, summoning everybody that was important in the kingdom out into a vast open plain not far from the city where everybody could see what was happening. And he asked them to bend the knee and briefly bow in worship before the image he had made. Let's read Daniel chapter 3. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. Ancient measurements, if your Bible has it in those old terms, understand this. That image is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It probably has human shape, but if you can imagine a human figure that is that tall, this this thing is ugly. It doesn't look normal, it's disproportionate. And it gleams with gold. An external source of history tells us that one image that was forged in this day contained, overlaid over the wooden structure and the other materials that were inside of it contained 22 tons of gold. This would have been much bigger and it's glinting in the sun. It says King Nebuchadnezzar set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Have you noticed how repetitive this is? Now, why is that? It's an old way of telling a story according to their culture, but the author wants you to stop for for a minute and look across that plain and see that everybody that matters is there all the nobility all the men of importance all the men of influence and authority they're all there including these teenage Hebrew boys that would have been fairly far down in the pecking order they matter but they're very far from the top in fact they're standing in the dirt with everybody else looking up at this image and the herald proclaimed aloud you are commanded o peoples nations and languages That when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And they did this. There are sources outside the Bible that speak of slaves being thrown into the furnaces. You see, the furnace is already there. The furnace has been used, doubtless, to help bake the brick and maybe to smelt the gold that has formed this image. It's already on fire. It's already billowing smoke. It already has men beside it tending its fuel. And everything in this scene is set to unify the kingdom, and it's only going to take a simple gesture. You see, the Babylonians had all kinds of gods, they were a diverse empire they didn't believe in a single god they believed in practically any god all Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to do on this day is to bow to him and his image his power to recognize that the gods that other nations had trusted had failed them and that's why he was in charge and that's why the image was a reminder of him whatever this was whether it was his image or more likely an image of his own god very very stark message there's a new king your lives are not your own anymore if you're going to prosper in fact if you're going to live in this new life that I've established for you you're going to have to bow down and pay loyalty to this image and to me as king and all it's going to take is a change in your posture fall down for a few moments when you hear the music And the narration goes into great detail about all the instruments that were assembled. In other words, this is the finest orchestra of its day. They've brought every kind of instrument known to the ancient world in their time to bear out on this plane. People who understand crowd psychology will tell you that if you want a group to do what you want, it behooves you to put them in a small space and put them close together. Much easier to think for yourself when you're out in wide open spaces. And it's a lot easier to make someone's resolve crumble if it's also noisy, if there's music covering thought so that they can't think straight and everyone falls down at the same time. It's almost inevitable that everybody in this crowd, at the risk of their own lives, is going to do exactly what Nebuchadnezzar wants. It's not for nothing that when your favorite team, if your favorite college football team takes the field, they're playing something we call the fight song. It's not the peace song, it's not the we're all happy to be here song, it's the fight song. When it's time for soldiers to re-enlist, they play martial music because the right kind of environment, the right kind of atmosphere, the right kind of pageantry, the right kind of noise and music and clamor can make anyone's resolve change. And Nebuchadnezzar knows this and it's all at work, everything is stacked against these young men. And the orchestra started playing. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, and all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's a sad day. You see, these three Hebrew boys, apparently Daniel is exempted from this because he's back at the palace. These three Hebrew boys have pledged their lives, their worship, their faith to a God who had promised to bless all the nations. Centuries earlier, God had reached down into human history and spoke to their ancestor Abraham and said, Abraham, through you, all the peoples, nations, and tribes of the world are going to be blessed. Now all the peoples, nations, and tribes are bowing before a grotesque golden image. And the orchestra is blaring and their 19-year-old ears telling them to do the same or risk the consequences. And I've tried this week, as distant as this story is, removed from my time and my culture, I've tried to imagine myself at any age, but especially as a young teenager, standing there in that crowd, listening to that orchestra. I'd like to think that I would have stood up, but I think it's much more likely that I would have found some way to make peace with a quick bow. Maybe cross my fingers and say, God, look at the mess I'm in. You've brought me here. Surely you expect me to survive, to go on, be a witness, right? Lifestyle evangelism. I don't mean it. They're falling down. I'll just put my head down. I'll do just enough. And they won't. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Sometimes the language really matters. Every time the word Jews appears in the Old Testament, almost every time, it has an anti-Semitic freight to it. And this word was translated in my Bible, maliciously accused. It literally means that they chewed the pieces of them. In other words, locals, natives of Babylon came and brought a bad report and said, King, there's trouble in the empire. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar and what follows is a hypocritical diplomatic speech designed to get the three in trouble and to put themselves in Nebuchadnezzar's good graces. See if you can hear the hiss behind their words. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, because when this king calls, you come. And he's already angry. And their lives are already in danger. Everybody's still there. The orchestra's still assembled. This brick furnace is still fiery. Archaeologists believe, in fact, that they may have found the base of this statue, and they've found many brick kilns like the one that is described here. It was likely dug into the side of a cliff to make it easy to transport up the cliff something of fuel or whatever you were going to melt inside of it up to the top with a big opening at the top and a small door in the side so you could put more air into it and make it hotter. You can imagine, archaeologists say, a giant, old-fashioned glass milk bottle. That's the shape. Plenty of room for gold, plenty of room for men that don't do what they're told. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. You'll live. We'll forget this. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's a good question. Bitterness is a temptation to these young men. They've seen their city subdued. They've seen their parents separated from them. They've seen in three years their language change. Honestly, not rhetorically, where is the God of Israel now? Has He forgotten the promises that He made? He promised to bless every nation and tribe on earth somehow through our ancestor, our father, Abraham, and here we are Hundreds of miles from home, speaking a foreign language, listening to a man whose tongue we've had to learn for ourselves, whose face is distorted and animalistic. He's so angry because his unquestioned authority for the first time in his kingly life has been challenged. God, where are you in all of this? What I'm trying to tell you is I've seen my heart, my faith fail, and I've seen countless Christians quit over far less What will they say? What will they do? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And I thought that was a strange response until I had the help of a good scholar who helped me see that the we have no need to answer in Hebrew is emphatic. And what they're saying is, king, we don't need to reply. We don't need to defend ourselves. God will do that for us. We're not here because of our own ideas, and we're not here to speak in our own defense. We have someone else to speak for us. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. You ready to see faith? Sometimes faith hinges on one phrase. Sometimes phrase, faith hinges on a single decision. Here is the heart of faith of these three young men. They said, in Verse 18, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. you understand what they're saying? King, we know the true God. We know who's in charge. We know who spoke the universe into existence. We know who we belong to. We believe he can and will rescue us even now from your hands, but if he won't, we still won't bow. That's faith. You see, if you can see God's deliverance in advance, if all the resources are already arrayed for you, if you can see how it's all going to work out, that's confidence, that's joy, but it's not faith. Faith depends on not knowing how it's going to work out, but trusting the one who runs the universe. In other words, what I see in this story is this. Faith means standing for God when you see no guarantees. They know what God can do. They believe their scriptures, that God spoke the universe into existence. They believe that the same God who set orderly laws to rule over the universe and to make life on earth not only possible, but very predictable in the universe can suspend those same laws for a time to keep them safe. And they say, we believe God can do that. We believe God will do that. But if not, please understand this. We're still not going to bow. They're going to stand for God when they see no earthly guarantees. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And that's an old way of saying uh, make it just as hot as it can be. In other words, this took some time. It took some time to haul that much fuel into the furnace. It took some workers to stoke it. They probably put bellows in that opening in the side and pumped furiously. By the time they were done, I'm pretty sure that the very thick adobe it was likely built out of was glowing on the outside because they've heated it beyond its usefulness. In other words, it is an earthly inferno, and they're watching all this thinking there's nothing on earth we can do to stop from going in there. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And on an ordinary day in most of human history, this is the end of the story. The faithful are incinerated. And two things fight against you understanding and taking the weight of this story with you to give, it, give you strength in your own heart. One is, what follows is an account of the miraculous. This is why so many voices in our culture speak loudly against the very existence of God. If there is a God who speaks the universe into existence, then literally everything else is possible because He made it and He runs it. He can suspend His own laws... Anytime He pleases. That's one of the temptations you'll have as a reader of this historical account, even with all the external history, telling you that these customs and these times were exactly as the Bible describes. It's right here that you're going to be tempted to step back in skepticism and say, that's a nice story, but it's really just inspirational. It's not historical. The New Testament knows nothing of that that attitude. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told of those who stopped the mouths of lions and quench fires because of their faith, looking back to this day, this time. The other thing that is going to pull against your belief in this story is to think for yourself that what this story means is that it always works out, and if you will only trust God, it will always have an earthly happy ending for you, and that's not necessarily so, as I'm going to explain because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a bad thing to be under King Nebuchadnezzar's command. The imperial guard, the strongest men he had, the wind must have shifted because they're the, they died first. And apparently with their dying efforts, they pushed these men through the top of the furnace one at a time, and they fall into the pit of it. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace, and that should be the end of it. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not burned, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Do you see the irony in this story? The only men that died were the king's soldiers and the only thing that burned were the king's robes these three, because of the presence of the fourth, walked out as calmly as they had. It must have been an absolutely horrifying moment for all the assembled nobility. This would be terrifying. When you throw human beings into raging infernos, the next thing that follows is their death, their incineration. Nebuchadnezzar understands what is happening here. He understands the depth and the reality of their faith. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. There's faith. They set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. He gets it. He understood the point of their decision. They have trusted God, though there was no guarantee that their life would work out. They had no guarantee of rescue, and they said, if not, he can rescue us. We believe he will rescue us, but if not, we still won't bow. That's faith, and it's rare, and that's why this story is in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar is unchanged in in his harshness, though. Check this out. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, look look at the penalty now, shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Same brutal, bloodthirsty man, but now he says... First it was, if you don't worship my image, you'll die. Now it says, I've seen a God so great that if anybody insults him, we'll tear you apart physically and lay your house in the dust. Same man, but with a changed perspective and an incredible witness of the God that sent these three young men willingly into the furnace. What's this story about? Why is this story here? For this reason. If you're going to trust and love and serve the same God, if you're going to exercise that kind of faith, you're going to be called to stand when you have no visible guarantee of rescue. This old picture was taken in 1936 Germany. The man you see in the picture stands alone at a Nazi rally, saluting Adolf Hitler in the early days of his power and his rise to promise. He alone on that day chose to quietly defy the rise of Nazism by keeping his hands folded across his chest while everybody else saluted. It cost him his life. It takes courage to stand. If you're going to faithfully follow God and serve Jesus in your generation in our day and time. It's going to take faith, it's going to take standing for God when you see no guarantee of how it's all going to work out. That's why Romans twelve, if you'll look with me, please, tells us in the in the Christian era to disciples of Jesus in the center of earthly power in their day in Rome, gave them the same kind of instructions. Romans 12, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's my marching orders in this world. Here's my marching orders and yours and our churches in this day. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Conformed means that there's outside pressure shaping the cha- Shaping the person who's being subjected to it. Conform to this world means that you're being given an outward appearance that does not conform to your inner character or your inner values. It's like taking four ounces of clay into your fist and making it into the shape, the shape you want. That's what pressure, that's what spiritual warfare, that's what the cultural pressure that we live in America in 2015 is doing against Christians today. It's always been this way. The instruction, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. On that day, on the plain of Dura, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not forget what the will of God was. He had spoken, they believed him, and without any idea whether he would rescue them or not, they trusted him. And they said we will not bow, we would rather die on our feet than live on our knees. We won't worship, we won't bow down, we won't change our allegiance, we won't change our God. Can I step out of the ancient world and talk to you briefly and pastorally about the world we're living in now in May 2015 in the United States? The orchestra is playing for us too. I came back to the United States 10 years ago and was surprised by how much I had seen the thinking, the culture, the values of our country change. It is exponentially different now than it was 10 years ago. You name it. Every issue in American life, literally from conception to death. Every important touchstone on which God has spoken clearly with the authority of his written revealed word, it's all being challenged. Birth, life, human sexuality, the institution of marriage which portrays the relationship between Jesus and his redeemed church, parenting, what it means to be wise, what it means to be successful what it means to seek pleasure and joy in the world, it's all being challenged, it's all being overturned. We find ourselves in a day where the orchestra is playing so loudly that you're being invited to bow down or pay the cost. A simple for instance. In our own state, the Cal State University system last year made a decision that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a campus ministry that has been around for decades, was discriminatory in insisting that the leaders of their inner varsity Christian Fellowship clubs be Christians themselves. He said, if you don't allow students of any faith to lead your Christian club, that's discriminatory. InterVarsity stood fast and said, it makes sense to us that the leaders of Christian clubs be actual Christians. And they were unrecognized by the Cal State system. You name the issue, there is a time coming at almost every point in American life, including the simple confession that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life in which you and I and our church is going to face increasing pressure to momentarily bow down. But faith calls for people to stand, even though they don't know how it's going to work out, even though they can see no guarantees, even though they are not assured of rescue. And it's important that I say that lest I twist the simple truth of this story into assuring you of a historical fact that simply does not exist. As Americans in this country, in this age, we are a historical anomaly in Christianity. Claiming Jesus as Savior and making Him King and Lord and Sovereign over life, birth, family, marriage, sexuality, friendships, and everything else in life has cost almost everybody all over the world dearly in comparison to what it daily costs us. The most bloody century in the history of the Christian church, in terms of the number of people who have been killed for their faith in Christ, wasn't long ago, it was the 20th century. If you cross the border into Mexico, I can take you into places where you will immediately feel the rejection from a society at large, and you can hear stories from people who have been cast out of their homes, have been burned out of their villages, have had their water cut off simply because they claim Christ alone as Savior. In China, and North Africa, and Cuba, in Iraq, and Afghanistan, all across Central Asia, everywhere in the world, and this is the way it's always been in all of history. Jesus calls people to follow him and live forever, and there is no assurance of earthly rescue. This story is notable in the Bible because in this day, God chose to step into human history and do something that, frankly, he always can do but rarely actually does. To give witness to himself miraculously that he will save these who trust him. Most of the people he saves will find out that he's actually trustworthy only when they open their eyes in eternity and see him face to face and realize only in the new life when they're in the presence of God that their faith was actually worth it and it all paid off. What am I telling you, I think in the next few years, if you stand on the clear, authoritative teaching of Scripture, which has been historically understood by believers in every culture and every nation where the gospel has been preached in the coming years and maybe not long, you're going to be branded all kinds of ugly things, and you'll find yourself transformed into a bigot and a hater, and the orchestra is going to play loudly for us. And the question will be whether we stand. There was a fourth man in the furnace. The Bible doesn't tell us who he is. Based on the other appearances of God in the Bible and the history of Israel, it seems pretty likely in fact, I believe myself, that this is a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ. And he was making a promise that God had made Isaiah, Isaiah literally faith, literally practically true for these men. In Isaiah 43, God had said, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For three men on one afternoon, their faith was tested and found true, their resolve stood fast, and that became a literal, actual reality in their lives. It may not be for us. There are countless Christians across, America, uh, across the world, and this is the way it has always been, who give generously with no expectation, for instance, of a tax deduction because those laws have never been under- In fact, in some places I could take you in Mexico, it's not an official rule, but a lot of people pay extra fees and extra taxes to people who come to their door charging them because they won't join in local local customs, and local celebrations. The orchestra's playing, folks. The orchestra's not going home, it's only going to play louder. And in your workplace and in your friendships in the bosom of your own family, in the way you talk about your faith, in the times you choose with God's wisdom to be quiet or to speak up, what the orchestra is always going to be inviting you to do is to momentarily bow. To pay a little respect to a different God. My invitation to you is that we take the simple truth of this story and a God who rescues and a God who is powerful and whether he rescues on earth or not who deserves our wholehearted worship and that we stand for God, we stand on truth, we stand with Jesus even if we see no guarantee. Would you pray with me please? I wonder how the culture and the pressure spiritually and culturally has been pushing back on you. I wonder how you're being conformed. I know the pressure points for me. Could I invite you to think of the ones that are pushing back against you and to take those to God and say, God, I won't bow to anyone but you. I'll be loving and gracious and respectful. I'll honor the authorities that you have established over me, but I won't bow down. I won't yield your authority to anyone on earth. I'll keep my heart, my behavior, my thinking, my choices, I'll keep them for you. And as you have that moment with the Lord, I wonder as you make a fresh resolve to stand, even with no guarantee of rescue... As I pray aloud, if it's the decision of your heart, and there's no group pressure here, there's no group psychology experiment, that you would speak to your your God and say, yes, Lord, I believe you, I'll stand with you. And as you tell him about that, you'd stand and join me as I continue praying aloud. Listen, there is no king, there is no royal, there is no sovereign but Jesus. All other rulers are all over authorities, they're only temporary. You can safely put your faith in Him. He was the only one to die on the cross. He was the only one to take His life back, to give you the assurance of of eternal life with Him. If you haven't trusted Him, do so today and stand with Him and stand for Him for the rest of your life, even if you see no guarantee on this earth, He will not fail you. Father, as we consider the pressure that is coming against us, and we resolve, Lord, to make our own stand. Would you strengthen resolve? Would you strengthen confidence in your word? Would you bless, Lord, and give us the resolve never to bow, never to worship anyone but you, to esteem no earthly advantage, no earthly protection more than we esteem our loyalty and obedience to you. As we, Lord, conclude this service, we give this offering to you. This in itself is an expression of faith. There's no earthly guarantee, Lord. There's no assurance that our obedience on earth, Lord, will be completely satisfactory until we see you face to face in heaven. Give us resolve, Lord, and strengthen this this congregation that when you speak, we listen, we obey, and we stand. In Jesus' name. so much for joining us on this edition of cross points if you have any questions about what you just heard please call our church office at 714-848-5511 if you are nearby next sunday we have services at 9 and 10 30 a.m visitors are always welcome at cross point and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the huntington beach community